Well, Sanctuary, it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to worship with you. Um, it's been a long week. I've been all over the place. I was uh, on a pastor's retreat in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I know, right? Pretty good. I'm sorry to say this. We all have to sell our houses and move <laughs> and take Sanctuary to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, it is amazingly beautiful. Um, I feel so grateful for that opportunity to be able to go. Uh, I went with a number of pastors. This was a, a pastor's retreat. And this is a cohort of pastors that I've been engaged with over the last nine months or so. This is the group of pastors that uh, I've been traveling around with a little bit where we, we went to the American South. We went to New Orleans, to Jackson, Mississippi, to Selma, Montgomery on this trip that was a, a pilgrimage to the American South. And then we also took a trip together to Israel, to Palestine, and dove into the conflict that's present there. And then this was like our debrief trip, which is like, man, what a privilege to engage some of these really intense issues and conflicts, and then to like rush off to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to go talk about them. But uh, this cohort over the past nine months, what we've been focused on is this idea of, of pilgrimage as our, our key educator. And so we've, we've taken this trip to the American South, we've taken this trip to Israel and to Palestine, and the point of the journey, the point of the trip for us is to break open what we thought we knew about issues surrounding racism, issues surrounding nonviolence, the work of peacemaking that we're all called to engage in. And so this, this point of pilgrimage, what we, what we experienced in these trips is that being exposed to others' realities, hearing their stories, putting our physical bodies in the location of others' pain. It does a couple of things to you that just talking about issues or reading about issues, it doesn't, doesn't do for you. All of this is about resisting the idea that my reality is the only reality. This is why you go on pilgrimage. It's Understanding that my experiences as a human being, what I engage in day to day, that even the worst parts of my day, the worst parts of my life, they're just my experiences. And what's important to realize about that is that if we're not careful, if we don't ever take the time to engage in other people's stories, to put our bodies in the location of other people and other conflicts, what we'll start to slip into, the danger, the temptation for us, is to think that my life, my experience, my reality is the only reality, the only real experience, that my pain is the only real pain. And if the only thing that's real is you, then other people's pain other injustices, other hurt and suffering, because it's not real to you, on some level it's not real at all. This is uh, the idea of, it's a kind of a big word, it's called solipsism. It's this idea that 
you have a self-contained worldview. It's this delusional way of understanding the world based entirely on yourself. So if, if I don't hurt, if I don't suffer, and if I do more often than not, if I do suffer, if I do hurt, more often than not, it's, it's, it's hurt and suffering of my own making, right? The, the pain that I experience is usually pain that I deserve because I did something dumb. So when we see other people's pain and other people's hurt and other people's suffering in the world, with this solipsistic worldview, what we're all tempted to do, what we're prone to do is think, well, if they're suffering, they probably deserved it a little bit. Solipsism is incredibly dangerous. And so we focused, again, on pilgrimage as a way of engaging a kind of truer reality. It's exposing us to strange foreign parts of our world that oftentimes feel like fiction, oftentimes feel like they don't really exist except in movies and on TV and in the books that we read. Pilgrimage also exposes us to the strange and the foreign reality of God. And that's something of what we see in our text today. In today's gospel, we hear Jesus' words, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, which is a shocking statement. To love other people in the same way that Jesus has loved us looks much different than we often think. He says, you also should love one another and that by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This moment in the text, Jesus' call to this new commandment, it happens sandwiched in between two kind of shocking events, two dramatic moments. Right before this happens, you have Judas's departure from the other disciples knowing that he's going to betray Jesus, knowing that this is the moment when he's gonna cash in on turning Jesus over to the authorities. And then on the other side of this commandment to love one another, you have Judas leaving, Jesus giving us this commandment, and on the back end we have Peter's rash promise that he would lay down his life before he would deny Jesus. And then of course, Jesus' sorrowful prediction of Peter's future this triple denial that he's about to move into. So it's here, between these two moments, between this moment of abandonment and betrayal and disloyalty that Jesus tells them, love one another. Of course, we should stop to consider what, what is the animating reality behind the life of Judas, behind the life of Peter, behind these acts of disloyalty and betrayal I think at least part of what's motivating them is this sense of solipsism, this, this introspective, exclusive worldview that for Peter and for Judas alike, they were too caught up in their own realities, in the ways that they were experiencing the world, too caught up in only trusting their perspective, that they start to act out in ways that are unfaithful. You know, one of the theories around Judas, knowing that he's one of Jesus' disciples, knowing that he's there sitting side by side, the other disciples, hearing the teachings of Jesus, why would he turn around 
and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces. Part of the theory, anyway, is that they still believed Jesus was going to be the Messiah in the sense that he was going to overthrow all of the powers that were oppressing them. And that Jesus seems to be kind of dragging his feet on making this reality real. So Judas, in his limited, solipsistic perspective of the world, thinks, well, I'll get this thing kickstarted. Surely if I sell Jesus out and he finds himself arrested, that that'll be the moment when everything is, the powder keg is going to erupt, right? But again, he's turned in on himself. Too limited of a perspective to see the big picture of what Jesus is doing and in initiating the kingdom of heaven. Peter, the same kind of thing. That he has no sense that this road may get difficult that it may lead to pain and to suffering. He only sees this ascension of Jesus as the Messiah, that of course he could never deny that. Of course he could never be the person who's disloyal to that kind of power, to that kind of authority. But when the world gets turned upside down and suddenly what Peter imagined would be unfolding isn't happening, of course he finds himself in a place of disloyalty, in a place of betrayal. This is what solipsism does to our souls. It turns us in on ourselves. It cuts us off from one another in ways that make us less human. Right now we're living in an interesting time when some of the most influential, some of the most powerful minds I started to write smartest minds, but I don't think they're actually the smartest ones. They're just the loudest ones. These influential minds and forces in the world, they're trying to market a different way of being human, a different way to exist as social creatures. And it's actually a way of being less human. They're trying to convince us that we can somehow be human without one another. They're trying to convince us that we can experience one another's lives without experiencing one another. I just had this moment in the hallway before church started where somebody said, hey, your trip looked amazing. They just saw my pictures on Instagram. They know nothing about the experience of the trip, anything that that formed and shaped and dislodged in my heart or my soul. But this is what we've been marketed, that we can experience one another's lives without actually having to experience one another. And this is the world we prefer. It's interesting, in this world of social media, when we are more connected and more aware of each other's lives than ever before. On a global scale, we have record numbers of people reporting that they are lonely, that they feel alone and isolated, that they feel like they don't have any meaningful relationships in their lives. It's because we're being sold this idea of solipsism. And it's these same forces that are marketing this way of being human, that are constantly at work, and they're vying for the ability to name reality, to tell us what's real and what's not real. 
And if you play your cards right, if you can curate the kind of life that you project out into the world, you can actually create your own reality, your own perception of what's real and what's not real. But it's these voices telling us what's real, what's not real, that are the same voices telling us what to be afraid of and who we should fear, trying to convince us that other people are untrustworthy, that other people who aren't like you should be feared and should be hated and should be resisted, that they're going to take away from you all of the things that you've worked to get. We see these narratives over and over and over again. <laughs> you know what we used to call those people? People who could make and unmake reality based on what they say, what they can convince you is real and not real. We used to call them witches. This was the power that witches have had in our history, right? The witches are the ones who, with just the right words, with just the right actions, can make reality or unmake reality based on what you want. All of our newscasters, all of our news hosts are closer to witches than they are reporters. They're convincing you of a reality that may or may not be real. And they're doing it profiting off of your fear, off of your anxiety, off of your isolation, off of your loneliness. Why? Because it makes good TV. Anyway. This is what a life closed off to the gospel looks like. A solipsistic life. It looks like a life completely turned in on itself. It looks like a life that's more rooted in fear and anger and resentment. And it doesn't even know why. Oftentimes we don't know the root of those fears and anxieties. Why we resent those people. And the fact of the matter is it's just a life that's con entirely consumed by our own experiences, by what we witness, by the pains that we feel, by the things that we suffer, by the hurts that we carry and the woundedness of our own lives. And it's at that intersection of fear and isolation that Jesus commands his disciples, love one another. This is the antidote that Jesus offers in the midst of fear and isolation and lives completely turned in on ourselves, what do we do to fix it? We love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's the bad news. That the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, it isn't just about acting kind, <laughs> kindly toward one another. It isn't even the, the kind of cliche like golden rule of doing to others what you would have done to you. It's the kind of love that we teach our children. Do to other people what you would have other people do to you, right? But the kind of love that Jesus is inviting his disciples into is a love that's about making the conditions possible where other people can be fully themselves in the same way that you are fully yourself. And that kind of love is hard, it's difficult, 
That kind of love requires proximity to people and their problems and their pain and coming close to it without belittling it based on the fact that it hasn't been your experience. So because it's difficult, we often opt for a kind of love for others that doesn't involve the burdens of other people. That we think we can love people without having to help carry the weight of the world that they feel and experience. As I was tossing some of these ideas around in my head yesterday in the airport, I thought, man, like, what would be a good illustration of this? And I'm walking our 16-month-old Goldie through the airport, and I look up and I see this stand at the airport. It says, be good to people. Kindness sold here. (laughs) The idea that you can just purchase a hat or a t-shirt or a bracelet that says kindness (laughs) and somehow you are better loving the world. This is a silly illustration, but it's one that we believe in our bones. That somehow if we just push the right amount of resources toward people, that somehow we're loving and we're caring for them. But that's not the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. The kind of love that Jesus calls us to requires proximity. It requires a closeness to people. This is the same story we see in the the story of the rich young ruler, this, this individual who comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to live forever? And he says, well, keep the commandments. He says, well, I kept all the commandments. He says, well, sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. And he leaves. The text says he's grieved because he had many possessions. Here's the thing. I don't think that he's grieved by the idea of selling things and giving them away. He's a person who's kept the commandments. He's a person who knows what it is to live morally and ethically in the world. And I'm sure if he was asked, he would give a large gift to the temple. I think the scandal for him is that Jesus tells him to sell it all Take all that money and give it to the people you don't think deserve it. Give it to the people that because of your solipsistic, turned-in life, you've convinced yourself they don't deserve what other people have. That the suffering and the hurt and the pain of their lives is somehow deserved. That that's what they've earned. Jesus tells him to go and be close to those people. And that's how you inherit eternal life. Entering into the life that really is life. It was going to cost him something that he was not ready to give. So, oftentimes we look for ways to love even well-intentioned ways of loving. And oftentimes we settle for these kind of low threshold loves, like buying the t-shirt or buying the hat that says kindness and be good to people. They don't really cost us anything. They're low thresholds. It's, it's the difference between 
like ordering DoorDash and making a meal for your family and friends. On one hand, you can pull out your phone, you can open the app, you can order the food, you can have it delivered, you can share a meal together, and then everybody goes home, but nothing actually happens. A high threshold is something that costs you something. A high threshold is like making the meal for your family and for your friends where you have to prep the food and you have to organize everybody's schedules and you have to figure out childcare and you have to clean your house and you have to set the table and you have to invite everybody in and then you have to serve it all and you have to do the dishes afterward. You've shared a meal in both experiences. One of them just leaves you frustrated and feeling disconnected from the world. The other leads to transformation because it costs you something, because you're engaged in the world and in proximity to one another's lives that the low thresholds of love just don't make possible. It's only these high threshold loves that will transform us and our relationships. I think this is where we get Jesus' promise a bit twisted. That we've heard Jesus tell us that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. And we assume that that means Jesus wants to free us from all of our burdens, to leave us burdenless. But there are some burdens, hear this today, there are some burdens God is not interested in freeing you from. There are some burdens that God actually wants you to carry, and it's the burden for your neighbor. God's not interested in a burdenless life for you. God wants you to carry those things that actually take the weight of your neighbor off of their shoulders. And so long as we live lives that are turned in on ourselves, a life rooted in solipsism, we'll never see the burdens that God actually wants to place on us so that our lives can be transformed into the body of Christ. So what's the solution? Lucky for us, we have some guides, some wise voices that have seen what happens when we turn our lives in on ourselves and they teach us something of the antidote to solipsism. A couple of quick thoughts and we'll wrap up. Dr. Martin Luther King is somebody who witnessed the atrocities that solipsism can lead to. And he believed, and I agree, and you should too, that solipsism, a turned in life, can only lead to violence. And so Dr. King, in his witnessing of this solipsistic life, he says the antidote is the realization that we are in beloved community. Not that beloved community is a reality that we have to strive for. He says the beloved community is the default reality that God has created us to live in. Another term that we've used to talk about beloved community is imago Dei. We love these kinds of phrases, right? Imago Dei, the image of God recognized in one another. But here's what beloved community isn't. 
An Imago Dei isn't. It's not this collection of bodies. Like this is, like this is Father Paul and this is Father Chris and this is Mother Janice and this is, who else do we have? Oh, Bishop Ed or Deborah or Josh Vicenna or who else is here today? Thomas Shepard's here, Amber Lowball. This is oftentimes what we think of as community, that we are individuals that we've now gathered together as individuals. This is the reality that we're sold in the United States, that you are your own person, you are free and autonomous and independent, and you can occasionally collect yourselves into communities. And we say, well, yes, this is right, this is good, we should be with one another. But this is not community. This is a kind of aggregate community. This is, a, this is a crowd, not a community. Because here's the thing is that, I think I said this was Deborah. Deborah can go over here and still be her blue solo cup. And Thomas can still go over here and be his blue solo cup. And nothing's changed about his reality other than his proximity to the community. You are more than solo cups. Christ has called you the body of Christ. You are part of something bigger and larger and more complex that it turns out it can't be real without you. If it is real without you, it's disabled in some way. And so, for King, for us, to realize you are in beloved community realizes that you have to show up and you have to play your part. And it also says that as much as I need to show up, I need you to show up and be everything that you were created to be. Whatever it is for you to look fully like yourself, that's who I need you to be when you show up in this place. I can't be me if you can't be you, that is beloved community. Imago Dei is about real, realizing our dependence as individuals, that I can't be who I am unless you can be who you are. This is why we often say here at Sanctuary that your faith, your salvation is not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It is as corporate and communal as it is anything else. That we need you to show up here, to be who you were created to be, to be free to be who you are, so that we can be free to be who we are. This is beloved community, that we need one another in order for us to be who God has created us to be. This is Jesus' message to his disciples, that in a world that is turned in on itself, you will be recognizable by the way that you carry one another's burdens as the body of Christ. That if one part of the body is wounded, the rest of the body realizes that pain and recognizes that pain and works toward healing that pain. We understand this physiologically. We see this happen in our own bodies and somehow we think that the body of Christ is going to work any other way. 
In another place in the Gospels, the new commandment that Jesus gives, it goes a step further where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we've read this in two parts. We've read this as I ought to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. And then I can come over here and I can love my neighbor as myself. But what Jesus is saying is when you love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and your mind and your strength, it will look like loving your neighbor as yourself. And so if you're looking for some kind of metric, if you're looking for some kind of litmus test about how well am I loving God, ask yourself, how well am I loving my neighbor? Not in the low threshold, like chipping in a couple bucks kind of way, but in that high threshold, loving your neighbor that costs you something, that leads to the transformation that Jesus imagines for the world. For Dr. King, the idea of beloved community wasn't some lofty, utopian goal. It's realistic. It's achievable. But it's only achievable specifically by communities of people who are committed to a philosophy and to methods of nonviolence. Refusing to do violence to ourselves and to one another. And the wisdom there is that because we are a body, because my success and my humanity depends on your success and your humanity, violence doesn't just hurt you, it hurts us. Solipsism, this turned in life, always leads to violence. Because if I'm the only one who really exists, then language of nonviolence and peacemaking is unintelligible. It doesn't make any sense to us. Loving your neighbor, carrying their burdens, none of it makes sense. Stand with me so you think I'm done. Another voice that teaches us something is the voice of Desmond Tutu. And for Tutu, the antidote of solipsism is a, a, another definition of the beloved community. It's not only rooted in Imago Dei, but rooted in this word, Ubuntu. This is a philosophy that emerges out of the Bantu people, these tribes of people in sub-Saharan Africa. And Ubuntu is the idea that I am because we are, which is to say that I can only exist as the person I'm created to be so long as you are the people that you've created, been created to be. And here's the thing about it is that it removes all sense of competition from the equation. That my success, my well-being in the world isn't dependent on your failure. We don't have to push other people down in order for us to rise up to the people that God wants us to be, but that somehow my success and my well-being is all tied up in the success and the well-being of other people. We are imitating creatures. And so the question for us today, we get this. 
My 16-month-old gets this. She imitates us speaking as she learns to speak. She imitates us walking as she learns to walk. She'll imitate our actions as she learns to act in the world. And that doesn't stop. We're all imitating creatures. And so we should ask ourselves today, who are the voices that are shaping us? Are they voices that are encouraging fear? Are they voices that are encouraging a kind of solipsistic posture? Voices that are constantly trying to get you to be afraid of other people so that you can be secure in what you have? Or are they voices that are leading us to hope, leading us to transformation, leading us to love? I won't read it, but the other text that we're given today is Acts 11. This is the story of Peter's vision of the sheet that's being lowered and the animals that he sees, and God tells him to eat, and he says no, and he says, don't call the things that I've created unpure. I've seen the church where they mark this has happened. They call it the cheeseburger church. <laughs> Give it a second. It'll, it'll settle in. But it's in this moment when Peter has this vision and these men from Caesarea arrive, these Gentiles, and Peter begins to speak to them and the Holy Spirit falls on them. On these people that in Peter's imagination, the Holy Spirit has no business falling on these people. And he says, God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is where love leads us. Love leads us to places of welcome, to places of unity, to places of dependence on one another. In the beloved community, the Imago Dei, I am human because we are human. With all of our faults, with all of our baggage, with all of our woundedness. So let's bear one another's burdens. Let's be human together in the way that Christ has called us. Amen.